welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Well, welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and we're happy to have with us today Alan Hirsch. Friend of the show. That's right. Well, we've is. never had him on before, but he's our friend. He's a, so, he's a yeah. good friend of ours. Yeah. Alan is the founder of 100 Movements, Forge Mission Training Network, and Future Travelers, among other things. He's known for his innovative approach to mission and is widely considered to be a thought leader and key mission strategist for churches across the Western world. Alan's the author of several books, including Read Jesus, Remaking the Church in Our Founder's Image, which he co-authored with Michael Frost, Frosty. and uh, recently been advi- uh, revised and updated. So before we hear from Alan, let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Executive Director of Wheaton College, Billy Graham Center. Well, hey, it's good to see you, and to uh, we'll talk to Alan in just a moment. I want to remind you that uh, if you're enjoying our interviews, it will help us if you left a review. I think, I think I get so many people tell me they listen to the podcast and I say, well, have you left a review? And they say they haven't. So here we're asking again. Also, check out some of the extended portions of some of our interviews at churchleaders.com slash plus as well. Okay, so Alan, let's history. We're, we're, we've known each other for, I don't even know, maybe 20 years. I remember you were doing the shaping of things to come. You were doing a tour. I went down to a church in Atlanta. Uh, I was pursuing a PhD in missiology at the time. And your book was like, uh, I mean, it was a co-authored book as well, like this one with with Frosty. Um, but your your book was like the conversation that everyone was having. This is the shaping of things to come. Um, and yet we talk later, and Read Jesus has been just a life message for you as well. So you've redone it. Uh, for those of people who are unfamiliar with the first edition of Read Jesus, which is a strange name, it needs explanation. What made you and uh, Mike Michael Frost actually write the book, and what's different in the second edition? Hey, just uh, on, on just so when we first met, I can still remember very clearly that day when we met you. Yeah, we were in like some sort of pub. You had to, you know, duck your head to get through the door. Do you remember? Yeah, it, it was. was like it was weird. Low, it was a weird vibe. Yeah, low ceiling. It was kind of weird, but I, it, I, I always remember that, and it was a you know a, a cherished moment, brother. It's uh, been great, you know, being a friend over these years. Um, uh, okay, so two two issue on on uh, on read Jesus. It's interesting. Um, I don't think it was terribly much later than um, oh gosh, it was two thousand eight. I think it came out, but uh, um, I had been somewhat kind of um, um, we wrote it uh, at the time primarily to to try and kind of to make sure that we understood that the you know the center of Christianity. The absolute center, the definitive center, the character and content of the, the, the Christian faith was found in Jesus. And so we we the idea of re-Jesusing, of course, is going back to Jesus. We can come back at the process a little later on in the talk if you want. But um, but uh, both Mike and myself had been somewhat productive, overproductive at the time. And uh, I'd come out with something like five books in 18 months, which is ridiculous. They just converged. And uh, the problem is with that is that no matter how anyone might have liked what we were writing. No one's going to buy five books. And so, you know, it, it wasn't really read uh, at the time. It was kind of missed out on. And, and so we felt that, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a pity because a lot of the books then we thought, were, you know, ought to be read. So this one, of course, we feel actually, strangely enough, is written for this time that we find ourselves in, hence the, the new edition. 
So, yeah, a timely book at any time, but I think particularly in our times now. Yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about that because, um, you know, the book itself has been out for a while. Now it's a, a recreated edition. I want you to tell mm -hmm. in a minute, we want to talk more about what's different. But one of the things that's different here, and, and you know, of course, you know, Mike's in Australia. He's there, there morling, and I've, I've had the privilege of preaching for him and teaching at the school. Uh, appreciate him. You've actually been here in the States for a long time. And if there's a lot of things that have happened, we've talked a lot about some of the, the world's mess that we're in right now. But mm -hmm. in American evangelicalism, I think one of the things we've seen is it's not so much shaped in Jesus image in a lot of ways, a lot of spaces, but uh, maybe it's more identified um, with political uh, mm -hmm. issues or political candidates or or uh, certain approaches to thinking about the nation and more. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think that's been a lot of our experience has been we have um, we have seen the bad. And a lot of us are saying we need to have a greater focus on Jesus, the kingdom, his mission, and more. So this has all become more evident since you wrote the first edition to the second edition. So as an outsider, and I'm asking you to meddle, right? Can I know it's always, you know, when I went to Australia, um, I was supposed to be in Australia, as you know, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. So I actually had to cancel my May 2020 trip. But I don't, when I, when I go to Australia, I'm very hesitant and as particularly as an American to say, here's what I think about Australian Christianity. Mm. But you've been here for a long time, and I want you to speak into some of, speak prophetically into some of our problems that uh, a re-Jesusing of the church, our lives and mission is the solution. Talk to us about that. Yeah, right. So, you know, I, as you know, I came to uh, America uh, 2007, and feeling a deep sense of call and deep within the will of God um, and believing that, you know, if we're going to change the, the trajectory of Western Christianity, you have to address the church in America. It's kind of like the Rome was to, to Paul. And, uh, and so I came somewhat innocently um, uh, with that in mind and I loved my time in, in America, um, at least until... Uh, you know the what you know the beginnings of the the culture wars which have become so normative for our time and uh and it just began to expose i think uh deep and dark unresolved shadows that that lie latent in 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 the american story um and and are unfortunately present within the church and the thing is that you know i come from south africa right so um i know what i'm looking at here in since I grew up in apartheid South Africa, I come from a Jewish family, uh, European Jews who pretty much, except for the South African um, expression of it, uh, were pretty much wiped out during the Second World War uh, in the Holocaust. And so, you know, every <laughs> every alarm bell in my Jewish soul, you know, is going off um, in saying that I think we are dealing with here something that is extremely dangerous: the ideological co-option. Of, of the faith um, in, in, you know, from either side of the political spectrum, but largely in our time, I think, from, from the right. Um, that is not, not different, uh, I think, from the challenge that Bonhoeffer uh, experienced in his pre-war Germany. Uh, I think it's a real thing. I know that people don't say you can't fully compare history. I don't see why you can't. 
and we must learn from it or we we doomed to repeat it right and and uh, and Boniface church uh, really he puts it down to non-discipleship which of course is uh, the failure to kind of pattern the life of the church the form of Christ uh, or or the individual Christian on, on the idea of discipleship. All it called for was belief in a certain set of ideas. Uh, in our case, it's belief in the gospel and, a, and often a very narrowed reductionist understanding of the gospel, a formulaic four point, five point, three points uh, system of the gospel. And, and that gets you in, but there's no expectation uh, in, of, of the idea of aligning my life and conforming my life to, to Jesus. Because, uh, you know, I think it's got the wrong center, personally. I've come to that conclusion. Let's explore that if you want to. But I do think we, we, it's, we're facing a very, very clarifying moment. And, uh, and this is why I think the re-Jesus thing is calling the church back to the absolute centrality of Jesus for the life uh, and the, um, the expression and the witness of the, the movement that claims his name. Um, I think this is the issue uh, of our times. And I think we, you know, the, hence the idea of Jesus or rebooting or recalibrating back to Jesus. Um, yeah. Uh, you can't jump over your shadows. I think that's the, ch the challenge. I think there's the only way to deal with the shadows that have um, been exposed, I think, is, is to uh, learn and practice metanoia uh, or radical repentance that goes to the heart and not only individually, but corporately. Uh, which is a whole new topic that I'm exploring at the moment, the whole idea of metanoia. You know, Alan, you know, we've talked about this before. Uh, personally, you, you and I, I mean, probably Ed, you too, we've all felt uh, disoriented in moments of this past, you know, a for few sure, years. Sure. And uh, it's not just, you know, everyday Christians, like church leaders are feeling disoriented mm. in like very pronounced ways very distinct ways that are different from even previous seasons. Um, and, you know, the social culture issues, not, not sure if they, they uh, specifically in the pandemic, if they caused a disorientation, but they sure really uh, triggered them. And I'm wondering, uh, follow up on Ed's question, like, did, did you sense already that there is something brewing underneath the surface mm -hmm. of church leaders, specifically the church in America? I think so, Dan. Um, I... I think that, um, you know, that one of its uh, statistical researchers early on um, uh, with the, the, the election uh, in 2016, um, the, um, I think he was saying like, you know, uh, X amount, I think it's 82% white evangelicals voted for Trump. But uh, in terms of the leaders, if, Ed, you correct me here, but the leaders uh, the church, when they were interviewed separately, didn't have the same statistic there. Um, and so it was that highlighted the fact that I think leaders have been unable to, in spite of all the things that we do, our pulpits and Bible studies and everything that the standard formulations um, uh, have failed to fundamentally disciple orient the church uh, to Jesus. I'll tell you a story. Um, this is a true story. Well, it was told to me as a true story. Uh, uh, a church uh, um, was going to go through the book of, uh, sorry, the uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So, but you know, and decided that in the first of the series of the sermon on it, uh, it was appropriate to read it out the whole thing. Now, it's a good three chapters. And it's quite a long three chapters and dense. So they decided to use something like 
Peterson's message, uh, you know, a popular, easy to listen to kind of edition. And about, you know, so it goes for about 15 minutes, the read, and about half the way or 10 minutes into the system, one guy in the back of, of the church uh, stood up and said, oh, I had enough of this liberal BS, and literally uh, got his family and the kids and stomped out. Um, and here's the challenge on that. You know, it's a funny story, but it's sad, is that he couldn't, even in spite of it being a, a different uh, um, uh, translation uh, or interpretation of, of, of the Sermon on the Mount, he couldn't recognize the shepherd's voice. And I think that's the, the issue that we're facing with, is we are, and leaders are trying to lead a church that doesn't recognize Jesus. The way I say it this way, um, for me, this is the this is the challenge, okay? So if a group of people, and I think this is what people now are experiencing, Daniel, um, group of people claiming to be Christians, claiming to be a church, do not look, act, sound, and think. Look, act, sound, and think like Jesus. Is it a church? And I don't know. I, I, I now think I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe it was a church or it's going to be a church, but I don't think it is. Because our fundamental challenge is, is, is that we must somehow be indexed to Jesus. We are meant to be corresponding to what he, who he is and what he, he was on about. Um, and it just seems to me that the church is out of alignment with its founder, which is astonishing. Um, it's astonishing to me that after 2,000 years of, you know, of church, of Bible, of Holy Spirit, we still of as far away from getting the job done as we have ever been. And I'm deeply disappointed about that. And it has to be addressed. This is the time we have to address this issue. Uh, we you have know, Alan, to um, church back to Jesus and realign it. I, I, um, I want to continue to go down this path. Um, and we, we're going to get to hopeful parts, because I think that's the point of your book, is there's, yeah. there's hope to it. But I remember the first time I heard you speak live, it was probably 2008 or something. Um, so you had probably just been here in the States for about a year. Yeah, one year. And, um, and something that I've heard you say multiple times was uh, part of the reason why you came to the States, uh, to, to America, is because you thought that if movement was going to happen or if change was going to happen, it was going to happen in America. And um, so a part of me wonders, like, um, you know, there, there was some healthy optimism that you had there. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds a little bit different today. Um, and for some of the reasons that you, you name, but what about American church leadership uh, led you to feel that way? And what about it do you see that is still hopeful? Well, so so my, my thing over then is that I'm just simply saying, I mean, like with the, um, you know, I would say like this way, if the Americans get it, uh, and, uh, you know, and I was talking about the missional church more broadly speaking then, they will shrink wrap it and sell it to the rest of the world, right? Which is what, what was needed. <laughs> uh, the, you know, so the issue is, did we get it? Um, yes, sometimes. Uh, but on the whole, uh, you know, I don't have any claim uh, to be able to change the whole system. But I think that there's some amazing things. And I think what I love about uh, the American spirit is the, the can-do entrepreneurialism, willing to give it a go. And so some of the best experiments um, in missional expression have come from America within the last 10, 15 years, and some amazing things, and some, you know, real proof of concept ideas have come through. So it's just not total, and it certainly hasn't impacted the whole. Um, but, you know, it takes time for these things, uh, and I, I, I accept that. 
Um, except I, I do think, uh, Daniel, I think the not only the cultural wars that has exposed our frailties and flaws, but I think the whole COVID experience and put us under pressure and exposed things in us, gosh, in, in immaturity, um, is, it, is it maybe a decent way of saying it? That, um, yeah, just, it just um, I don't know if it just overwhelms. And the problem is everyone goes to their sides. And that's the problem is we've gone all ideological. When the time is, we're not to kind of rally around certain ideologies, but we're meant to rally around Jesus. Um, yeah. there, again, uh, I, I see elements of hope in that. There are people beginning to um, to wake up and trying to, you know, organize around these things. So when you talk about um, rallying around Jesus, there are, um, I, I don't know anyone would disagree with that, where the application would be and what does it mean? I mean, again, you made strong comparisons early on to Bonhoeffer's day. Those are, those are strong. And, and again, the, we're having an interview, having a conversation. Those are strong words. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Doesn't mean we have to agree on everything in the midst of the conversation. No, of course but not. I do deeply share with you uh, an acknowledgement that the church, and again, people don't just listen in America to our podcast, but but the American church has um, deep-seated issues. You know, I'm, 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 what am I, four or five years late on writing my book on the future of evangelicalism because I'm really struggling with what to address and how to finish it, and InterVarsity is listening and saying, yes, you are, Ed Stetzer, so I'll be taking, you know, a sabbatical from Wheaton Responsibilities to actually finish it. Um, but one of the things you said is you can't jump over your own shadows. So help me, what are the shadows that you think we in American evangelicalism need to not jump over? What are they? And let's talk about that, and then let's talk about what you think some of the solutions are. What are the shadows? Well, you know, I mean, the, the well-articulated ones, of course, are the, um, the implied nationalism, um, um, which is very much, you know, being explored very publicly um, by people on either side. Um, so I think that, you know, we, we're trying to grapple with that. And I think the whole racial issue, but the, the shadow on the race thing is like simply this is like, you know, this, you know, the whole idea of slavery and so much is built on it. I came from apartheid South Africa and one of the, um, and South Africans couldn't could jump over their shadows too. We had to, you know, and uh, in the post-apartheid era, they had the Re Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was an attempt to kind of confess our sins. And I wonder whether that, that hasn't really been done. And it, it was a sin. We built, uh, I was born a white person, Jewish, so I struggled with that because it was racist and extreme, very anti-Semitic. But, um, but I was white and I was born into a white hospital. Uh, everything was geared for me. I was born a racist simply because I was white in South Africa. I've had to grapple with that. Uh, you know, the implicit racism that uh, that was that was kind of difficult, you know, and and for me it led me into a lot of fights at school, and so I had a lot of those things. And I escaped from South Africa eventually because I couldn't cope with it. But I hated I hated apartheid. It never made any sense to me, and it was it was legitimized by the church. It was actually a Christian heresy before it was a political theory, actually. Yeah, but, but help me but, understand because when you said uh, I was born racist. Um, Help me understand what you mean by that. I understand you're born into a context where racism was built and baked in. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, the thing is that, and, and you know, like it's it's privilege, I guess, white privilege, but it was one where the whole system was geared towards my benefit. 
there were people who we built entire industries on the back of of uh, yeah, no, I agree, but you so you were born into a racist system. system. Yeah. system. I'm trying to understand the born yeah, racist the part. system. Yeah. So right. yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So you know, it just means that I I never really in my early years had any critique of that. I just thought that was normal. You know what I mean? And every white South African did. Right. It was. It was. I, I grew up in uh, Levittown, which, um, which there were no African Americans around. And if you look at the history of Levittown, New York, you you know why. But you're born into that setting. Okay. I want to make sure I understood kind yes. of what you were saying. So these are some issues: uh, nationalism, um, the issues of racism. racism. These are shadows. Are there others? And I think the, the the you know the interesting thing about metanoia, of course, which is the biblical term for repentance. Repentance is a terribly bad translation. Justin. Uh, apparently in the third century, fourth century, uh, translated it as penitentia, which of course implies this idea of penitence or the idea of feeling remorse for your sins, which I think is real, and but it's very individual, and that became normative. But the interesting thing, the word of metanoia, which is, by the way, the first words on Jesus' mouth, metanoia te, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and uh, John the Baptist, by the way. Why? Uh, why? Because metanoia actually means extend your mind or change your mind, uh, change your way of thinking. And uh, this is addressed primarily in the Bible to Israel as a whole. Israel as a whole is called to rebel. Judah is called to repent. Uh, and then, of course, the church uh, as a collective um, for ancestral sins and things that we've done together. So like the church as a whole, you know, Revelations, you know, one, two, three, you have the seven churches, they're called to repent. So how do we do that? How do we collectively repent for things that we personally have not done, but have been collectively done? And I think we need to explore that together and to learn how to lament, uh, and you know, before God and, and apologize for misrepresenting so much. Um, yeah. So I think there's something in that, and I, I don't know. Um, I think we have to learn this. It's just not something we've we've generally practiced. And we've also, we've again reduced it down, by and large, to you know personal you know, and then not a particularly nice you know we try and dodge the experience anyway because it's not pleasant, you know having to repent. And, and okay, so um, and I do think I mean there's certainly corporate repentance in in the scriptures, um, individual repentance and corporate repentance. So yes. so come with me then to the solution, um, because the solution you've laid out even in our conversation is to become more like Jesus, to be shaped like Jesus. Yeah. Um, and you, you gave areas where um, of concern, shadows. You talked about specifically racism and nationalism, uh, areas I, I agree with on both of those things. It, I guess for some people, they hear become more like Jesus, and they could hear become yeah. a kind person yeah. who's passive about other big cultural issues of our day, where culture is moving away from uh, from biblical values in other areas as well. So. What is that? Is this a is this a passive niceness of accepting our new place in the cultural reality where we're a marginalized group that is seeking to show and share the love of Jesus from the margins? Is that the prescription? Because I think that's where a lot of American evangelicals who are in a different place than Australian evangelicals, who mm -hmm. pretty much everyone would agree are not going to have a substantive impact on society's moral yeah, standards. We were very, very but, marginal. <laughs> right, right. And, and here, but it's not here. So, so is it this accept the marginalized place and show yes. and share and love Jesus from the margins? Or how do you address some of the other moral issues 
of our day that the that that followers of Jesus would speak to historically. Yeah. Just yes, let me get to that. But I think part of the issue, often people say to me, "Oh yeah, but what's Jesus?" Which I, you know, which yeah. is, a, is a classic answer. And I think, oh my gosh, that's such a dodge. Which Jesus? You know, is it the you know um, the high church Jesus or the low church Jesus or you know you know? And I I get that we co-opt Jesus, we make him like us when we must become like him, which is of course one of the main themes of the book. Uh, how you know we co-opt Jesus to our fundamental ecclesiology or our causes. But here's the thing: I say, no, it's the Jesus you bow your knee to, and the Jesus you pray to. That Jesus, you must, you know aligned to him. Um, there's no dodging that because prayer is the most honest language you can have. You cannot fundamentally lie in prayer. Um, if it's true prayer, it's very honest. And I think that's the Jesus we go to. Um, and that Jesus will fix us up. Um, and, and here I say to people, Ed, you know, you can't go wrong if you become more like Jesus. Not possible. God's new way of being human, uh, the new, no, the, the second Adam, the, the recalibration of the human race in, in this person who is the perfect humanity. And, and, and this is why it's so important, uh, is, is the model of discipleship is built on Jesus. Uh, and I think um, that's the Jesus we must become like. Uh, one of our problems, and we've spoken about this, um, but I think that we, evangelicalism by and large, and the very name gives us away. And I've come to this as a very startling, gosh, difficult uh, conclusion, but I offer it here as saying that I think it's fundamentally calibrated to the wrong center. So um, the church is calibrated, the evangelical church is calibrated to the gospel. We have all movements, which I serve, by the way, um, uh, that are talk about gospel-centered. Uh, the problem is, and I search the scriptures and I can see nowhere where we're called to be gospel-centered. Nowhere. Uh, I don't know where we got that from. We're meant to be Jesus-centered people. Gospel-focused, maybe, or, you know, it's sort of gospel-calibrated. I don't know what the, how we'd want to use that. I think we, I'm not trying to marginalize it, but I want to decenter the gospel. Here's the problem with the, putting the gospel at the center, is that you can't, one, it's a doctrine, usually around a, a certain atonement theory that's very debated, by the way. I mean, there's whole groups that define themselves on a certain understanding of it, and they fight with everyone else. So how are we possibly going to be centered around the gospel when we actually debate it and we don't even know what we're looking at? And so I would say, like, you're not – and here's the other thing about being gospel-centered. You can't become like the gospel. It's a doctrine. Another thing, problem with the doctrine, well, it's a doctrine. It's a set of ideas that you, you, you might have mental uh, assent to, but you you can't become like it, and there you go. It literally, uh, it, it literally excludes discipleship. Discipleship is that we must become like Jesus. And more okay, I kind of feel like I want to follow up on a question with that. So I know you're going to jump in with a question, but okay. So I'm 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 again I'm I have some questions about some of the stuff you just said. We and we'll talk about that another time because we're friends and we'll talk through some of those things. But I'm still not sure I get what because again you're you're writing and speaking a lot to American evangelicals. And, mm -hmm. and I, I resonate with a lot of what you say, but our situation is different here. So what I wanna come back to is what does, cause I, I don't know that you answered my question. Um, so what does it look like? Does this mean to embrace 
the marginality of yes, the right. Christian experience live on mission there? Because we're in some pretty big cultural mm. turbulence and tumult that, mm. uh, that you know, we also want to, well, well, do we need to speak into from your perspective? So talk to me about yeah. that. What yeah. is it to be like Jesus in American evangelicalism, which may be different in, yeah. in uh, I mean, similar and different, but uh, there might be some differences because of the population here. Yeah. Yeah. So I, actually, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. So I think that one of our things that people think is that it's our role in life uh, to legislate for other people's morals. We're the moral guardians of society, but who the hell gave us that? Who gave us that job? I don't think we're called to be that. We're called to be witnesses to, you know, to that, to another way of being human. And so one of the things is I think that there's a sense of moral control. And so we seek to legislate um, our views over other people. And that gets us into all kinds of trouble. Um, so I do think embracing marginality is actually will teach us uh, where you stand determines what you see and what you do. If you stand at the center of society, uh, you're seeing a very different view uh, than the New Testament view. The New Testament church was marginal. Uh, it was persecuted. That continued for a long, long time. Um, they were not legitimate until much later and the Constantinian uh, embrace. Um, but I think that fundamentally it changed the way we saw ourselves in our relationship to society. Um, so I think, yes, it's embracing marginality and then the call to witness uh, and uh, uh, to credible witness. And yep. we do that through living. I love the term, uh, um, uh, that, you know, the idea of the saint or the disciple as a theological person that is our lives speak our message, our lives are theology. When people look to the church now, unfortunately in America, the people looking on, they, they don't see any goodness in us. And maybe it's a media problem, but I mean, I think there is goodness. It's just that that's not what people think when they think of the evangelical church, that they're good right. people. We yeah, seem to be kind of grumpy, bad-tempered, dangerous people, actually. Yeah, I and would also say that when the salvos, as you call them in Salvation Army, here in the – I often hear people say that if we would just – Christians would just serve the poor and the marginalized more, they would change their reputation in society. Um, yet if you Google the Salvation Army today, you come up with just, I mean, the, all, almost all the news stories are negative about their uh, views of sexuality and more. Um, so so it appears that- Different in parts of the world, you know, I mean, like the Salvation Army, I mean, in, in Europe, you know, it's, it's pretty highly considered, even in Australia. No, I agree. The Salvos are highly yeah. considered, but again, we're in a different cultural yeah. situation yeah. here. Yeah. And so, and I'm trying to, so, so embracing marginality, living on mission in the margins is literally what Sal the Salvation Army has done. And it hasn't in the national conversation led to them having a good reputation. They're widely dismissed and discarded. Uh, and you in, can see in this that country. in the news report, at least in this country, because I think part of the challenge is we're in the midst of a, a cultural moment that's different than a lot of the rest of the world. So mm -hmm. let me give you one example, and then I'm, I'm asking too many questions, Daniel. I'm going to let you come in. But So and when I moved to Buffalo, New York, Don and I moved to Buffalo, New York to start a church among the urban poor, I basically said, we're just going to focus on reaching people for Jesus, helping them to live on mission. I might have used words differently then. I don't remember. Um, and an African-American pastor challenged me. Well, I asked him, I said, why are you so involved in like the zoning debates at City Hall and more? And... Um, you know, trying to keep less liquor stores in the community. We lived, we li lived in a community that the plurality was African-American, um, and he was very engaged involved. That community was all over the news with the Topps Market shooting is just down the road, about a mile from where I lived. Um, 
And what he said to me is, is Ed, we spend our lives uh, pulling people out of the river, dead or drowning. And, and he said, sometimes it's okay to go up the river and try to change the situation that keeps throwing people in. So if we embrace the marginalization of that, if we step out of the public discourse, there are people, there are implications uh, in and on society that we might have in a different way than Australia, the ability to, to speak into and to address. So keeping in mind that I, rec I actually think Christians and evangelicals will be increasingly marginalized. What I'm trying to understand is how, where does embrace that fit in this cultural moment, which I think is different. Does that make sense? Help yeah, me with this. Yeah. yeah. So, so I wonder, no, I was, is, and I was going to say, I mean, like, is that our only option? Um, or are there more subversive ways where we are helping to renew cultural institutions without only having to be at the margins? Because I, I do think there's a, there's a spectrum here. And, it's a fair uh, way to put it. Fair way to put it. So talk to us, Alan. Give us, I mean, again, I'm pressing on this because we're friends a long time. Yes. And and there are distinct differences between yes. the Australian experience and the American evangelical experience. And I find myself in global, you know, I'm going to teach at Oxford this fall. And I find myself far more able to talk about mission in a culture uh, like the UK, where this is not like evangelicals aren't going to turn the tide of no. Great Britain. Um, and, and yet some evangelicals think that they can, and they certainly have influence. I'm not, I, I gotta be careful even as I say that, because I think there's an influence that's here that has not gone well in the last few years. And I wonder if it can go well, or if it just means we gotta just embrace the marginalization. Can we fix the disproportionate influence or do we take the path that you're talking about, which is more embrace the marginalization? Can you hear the tension that I'm working through? Yes, I, I think so, except I would say, so I, I think we need to be involved in, in various, um, you know, agencies and, 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 you know, in government as witnesses. I don't think we could completely withdraw ourselves from that. I don't think that's what I think is meant by credible witness. So, um, but I, I do think that the, this idea of coercion, like a coercive moralism, um, which, you know, as being, you know, the, seeing ourselves as the guardians of, of culture's morals. And um, I think, you know, the, the other side, uh, it is that, you know, if it's a genuine pagan expression, let it be so. It's only going to mean the gospel shines a bit brighter, right? We stand out uh, um, a whole lot more if you just let let things go. I'm not saying we should, but um, let, let's trust that, that good Christian action does change things by giving an alternative, by creating different structures, by you know feeding the poor, short-circuiting around welfare systems if you have to, to, to do the things that we have to do in order to be the people we're called to be. So I think it's 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 it probably is more subtle, and I think you know you're hinting at that. Um, um, but but uh, you know so again we've got to leave the kind of the radical change uh, of society to Jesus and uh, you know in the end he is the measure. Uh, and interesting, I, I, uh, with a dear activist friend of mine who's very very involved in in uh, social activism, tended to have a, a, a view of Jesus that it was just church based. I said, but Jesus is not just you know a perfect human being for for. Uh, for Christians, I mean, it, it is very special for Christians. I think you know, Christianity is based on Jesus, so of course. But but I would argue that as the 
the alternative, the new way of being human, God's perfect humanity. He's the archetype of the human for all human beings. And in the end, in the end, uh, and this is echoing C.S. Lewis, I'm not sure if it's quoting him properly, but is, is that God will have us all Christ-like or he won't have us at all. In the end, mm -hmm. we will all bow our knee <laughs> to, the, to, to Jesus. That's where we're going. And you don't have to be, you know, Christian now. So in the end, that's Jesus's job to yeah. change. Amen, amen. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks about the new way to be human. You know, Alan, this has been a, a rich conversation in our last minute together. I want to I want you to speak to movement leaders, organizational leaders, church leaders, because um, they're, they're you know, navigating all this in their head. How do you advise them about their energy? So should they be spending most of their energy trying to create new things or bring renewal to what's already it's existing? Good. Good. So from your perspective. Oh, uh, you know, the, well, that's, yes, I think that the, the answer, of course, is both. But here's the thing. You can't keep doing the same things expecting different results. We have to experiment we have to find new forms and expression. So, and I think this is true of any era. It doesn't really matter uh, whether it's even now. Um, um, this is apparently going to, um, it was apparently Picasso who said this. I cannot source it properly, but I'm, I'll claim it for myself, but I can't. But he said this, that the best way to preserve tradition is not to wear your granddad's old hat, but to have children. And I think it's a great metaphor, right? You think about how do you preserve tradition? I mean, you can either go the way of like you know, forcing everyone to wear granddad's old hat, which of course ends up badly for everyone. And the whole traditionalist kind of thing is built on that, predicated on that assumption, just repeating what is in the past. Um, but if, if you think about how you pass your story, your tradition down healthily, is it to be a good parent, you have children, you, you know, they become adults, they become free you know, agents in in their own right, and they will not only carry your DNA into the future, but they will also preserve your story. And that's the best way to preserve tradition. So I would say experiment like crazy, have lots of kids. Um, you're going to fail at some of them, but some of them are going to carry that story onwards. So we, we, we're now facing a huge adaptive challenge. And that's the thing we've, you know, it, we adapt or we die, or, you know, we will find... Um, or we allow the compelling opportunity of this moment to really help us to innovate, to find new solutions, to be better at what we're doing. Um, if you want the Reformation formula, Semper Reformanda, uh, the church reformed, ought always to be reforming according to the word of God. That just kind of means keep innovating. Don't get stuck on a certain form of the church. And that comes from 400 years or 500 years ago. And uh, I always loved the word... Uh, Alan Kay's kind of um, quote, uh, you can't predict the future. Now, who knows what it's going to bring, but you can invent it. And I think you can change the future by inventing things, by doing things that shift the course of history, uh, hopefully more positively. So let's get to inventing a whole lot more than we currently yeah. do now. Fascinating. And I, I, I we, first of all, I, th I thought in my head I wrote the forward to read Jesus, but I didn't. What did I write the forward to for you? Was yeah. that... Um... You, uh, you wrote you, Oh, the Forgotten Ways. That's right. Okay. So, so again, so those who don't know, um, I'm a, a, we're both friends and I appreciate Alan's writing uh, because I, I want, we're, we're what you can actually hear my struggle in the question. So I'm very much think that in, from the margins is actually where, uh, where Christian movements have thrived historically. I don't think you can really like 
come to a different conclusion when you look historically. They've lived on mission in those contexts. I, I've often told people to look to the African American church in the last you know few centuries and more. And so um, I'm super thankful for ReJesus, the I, the emphasis and rightful call for women and men to be shaped into a Christ-like image and and to join Jesus on mission. That's a theme that we always talk about. That John. Uh, Johannine passage, you know, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. So in in 30 seconds, because um, again, the, we've been talking about the book, Re-Jesus, Remaking the Church in Our Founder's Image. Just would you mind just talking to the pastors and church leaders who are who listen to us of how they, in their own lives, because I'm convinced you can't lead what you won't live, uh, mm -hmm. in their own lives, how can they, and I encourage them to get the book, Re-Jesus, but how can they step into that more Christ-like reflection that we all need as leaders, staff, church. That's most of our audience. Well, I just think is to to uh, to to uh, very simply and very realistically, and and I think in prayer, is uh, to recover the. Just go back to Jesus when you lost him. We don't know where we're at. And we we've, what the heck's this all about? I don't think we can do any better than going back to Jesus. Uh, where else do we go? He has the words of eternal life. But where else are we going to go? There's no other center. Uh, and so we, I think it's it's time for us as, as individuals and as communities to recover the absolute centrality and meaning and significance of Jesus for our lives. So prayer is a good place to start. And I mean, real prayer. Of, I love Jesuit in Ignatian prayer, <laughs> which is all about obedience and centered on Jesus. And you'll do what he tells you to in your prayer. So that's that's a good place to stop. Amen. You've been listening to Alan Hirsch. You can learn more about Alan at alanhirsch.org. And don't forget to check out his uh, book, Read Jesus, uh, co-authored with Michael Frost. You can find more interviews with the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast, as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And don't forget that you can check out extended portions of some of our interviews um, at churchleaders.com slash plus. And again, if you found our conversation helpful today, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.